Chapter 9 The Myth of Merit The word meritocracy is barely older than the practices that it describes. It was coined by the British sociologist Michael Young in his 1958 satire, The Rise of the Meritocracy. Young opposed meritocracy in scathing terms. The rise of the meritocracy is a cry of warning rather than a song of praise. A current of foreboding and even violence runs through the narrative. And Young himself regarded the book as a dystopian fantasy along the lines of George Orwell's 1984, or more immediately, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Young imagined that meritocracy would use increasingly accurate and increasingly early tests for native intelligence ruthlessly to sort people into schools, universities, and eventually jobs. The sorting would produce a massive, stable, and complete social stratification by ability. In this way, Young proposed, the most perfect formal equality of treatment, in which people of like native talent received like education income, and status would produce enormous substantive inequalities in the distribution of social and economic advantage. Ultimately, he warned, the inequalities would become too great for even meritocracy's ideological power to bear, producing revolutionary and often senseless violence. Young was right to worry, it has turned out, although he worried about the wrong things. Believing in nature rather than nurture, he thought that even meritocrats would be born rather than made. This caused his fantasy to mistake the social technology that meritocratic inequality would employ. In fact, modern meritocracy operates not through more and more accurate testing for natural talent deployed earlier and earlier, but rather through more and more intensive cultivation of nurtured talent, extending longer and longer. Moreover, Young underestimated how pervasively meritocracy would transform society. He imagined that meritocracy might change the facts about how society allocates economic and social advantage without also changing the values, the moral and political ideals, by which the allocation of advantage is judged. And he did not see that meritocracy would bend the arc of innovation to favor the skills that it produced so that meritocratic education and meritocratic work would come to rationalize and even require each other. Young underestimated both the powerful charisma that meritocracy would exert and the long shadow that meritocratic inequality would cast over economic, social, and ethical life. Young's satire missed its mark by a mile. The term he introduced became widely embraced rather than reviled, and Young himself lamented this turn of events for all his life, even into the new millennium. New Norms to Suit New Facts Epical transformations cannot be criticized by deploying the norms of the old regime. Meritocracy has remade society so profoundly, launching interpenetrating upheavals at home and at work, in practical life and in the imagination, that the ideals concerning equality that Young inherited could not take the measure of the world that he imagined. Present-day ideals concerning justice, entitlement, and even merit are all meritocracy's offspring and carry its genes inside them. 
Meritocracy has built a world that makes itself, in all its facets, including meritocratic inequality, seem practically and even morally necessary. This is the tyranny of no alternatives that makes the meritocracy trap so difficult to escape. Coming to terms with the new facts that meritocracy has created, including the peculiar patterns of meritocratic inequality, demands new norms designed and structured with the meritocratic world in mind. It takes a new imaginative frame, one that acknowledges meritocracy's charisma, to clarify and to vindicate the complaints of meritocracy's discontents, and eventually to escape the meritocracy trap. Young's efforts help to build the new frame, even if his express arguments against meritocracy cannot convincingly fill it. He was forced to invent the word meritocracy because the natural and familiar word for rule by the most virtuous, aristocracy, was already taken and had, as a result of centuries of political activism and ideological work, acquired a pejorative sense. Young therefore replaced the Greek root for most virtuous with the Latin root for earn and coined his term. Both Young's concept and its construction followed historical precedents. George Bernard Shaw, whom Young much admired, had written about what he variously called aristocratic democracy or democratic aristocracy, by which he meant that good government required hierarchy, but one based on capacity, not breeding. Slightly earlier, the Frenchman Émile Boutmy created the Grande École Sciences Po, attended by six of the past seven French presidents, specifically to shore up the elite against the crumbling of aristocratic prerogatives, so that, he said, the upper classes could preserve their political hegemony by invoking the rights of the most capable. And Thomas Jefferson, who would have been farther than Shaw from Young's Fabian English mind and less coldly cynical than Boutmy, had even earlier embraced a natural aristocracy, whose grounds were not wealth and birth, but rather virtue and talent. Young's wordplay was less revolutionary and more an effort to name an existing mood, which sought to replace an aristocratic hierarchy that modern democratic capitalism had rendered debased and even ridiculous with another hierarchy that it might embrace. Although the common imagination casts meritocracy and aristocracy as opposites, these origins of the word meritocracy reveal, as Young himself believed, that the two social orders are in fact close cousins. This background insight provides more powerful ammunition against meritocracy than Young's express reasoning. The analogy to aristocracy weaves all the threads of the argument against meritocratic inequality together into a powerful, unified critique of the meritocratic worldview. Meritocracy, like aristocracy, comprehensively isolates an elite caste from the rest of society and enables this caste to pass its advantage down through the generations. Meritocratic education privileges rich students, glossy jobs privilege educated workers, and the feedback loops between training and work ensure that the two forms of privilege support each other and grow together. This dynastic quality, 
which operates both at the level of the individual family and at the level of the elite caste, is the key to understanding where meritocracy has gone wrong. Aristocratic dynasties, based on hereditary landedness, were viable when land was the most valuable economic asset, and in consequence, wealth naturally endured across generations. But as Roscoe Pound, the Nebraska-born dean of Harvard Law School, remarked in 1922, wealth in a commercial age is made up largely of promises, including especially the promises contained in labor contracts. And the human capital that underwrites the value of labor must be arduously rebuilt in each new generation. The legal regimes that had sustained aristocratic dynasties in the Ancien Regime, including primogeniture, which kept estates concentrated in single owners, and the fee tail, which kept estates within families, were inadequate to these new conditions. Additional factors, inheritance taxes and wars, which confiscate and destroy physical wealth, piled atop the structural shift and helped to speed aristocracy's demise. Land lost its value. Aristocratic families lacked the skill and flexibility to adjust to new conditions, and bourgeois states eroded whatever vestiges of aristocratic legacies remained. Now, meritocracy renovates the dynastic impulse for this new world. Meritocratic education passes human capital down through the generations, and elite training additionally grooms each new generation to resist indolence and decadence, and instead to husband its caste. Elite schools and firms police caste to establish, in effect, a meritocratic version of Debrett's peerage and baronetage. This time also, law backstops dynastic succession. Legal rules insulate children from their parents' debts to prevent the current generation from mortgaging the human capital of the next. In a meritocratic version of the fee tale that once kept aristocratic lands in the family, and inheritance and gift taxes pass over the massive wealth transfers that parents make in favor of minor children by investing in their schooling to build their human capital. The meritocratic inheritance is the contemporary equivalent of aristocratic breeding. The meritocratic reconstruction of dynastic privilege may be less secure than the aristocratic one was, although history, because its gaze selects for longevity, gives aristocracy an appearance of stability that it did not possess in lived experience. It is certainly costlier to elites. Each new generation of meritocrats must recapture its privilege anew through genuine hard work. And the meritocrats' incomes depend on exploiting not others, but rather themselves. But although this explains why elites might join the ranks of meritocracy's discontents, it does not render meritocratic inequality any less hierarchical or meritocrats any less inclined toward dynasty. The shift from aristocratic to meritocratic dynasties does not reflect a rejection of social hierarchy so much as an adaptation or friendly amendment made in order to preserve hierarchy in the face of economic and social changes that rendered the aristocratic version unsustainable. Debunking Merit 
If one had asked an aristocrat of the Ancien Régime why he was entitled to a disproportionate share of wealth, status, and power, he would have answered, following Aristotle, that he possessed the greatest virtue. He would, moreover, have offered this answer in good faith, and possibly even credibly, given the broader circumstances of his age. The aristocrat had the right relationship to wealth, and especially to land. An agrarian economy, in which immobile capital sustained no real growth, debased commerce, which was nearly zero-sum. At the same time, this economic regime required that land be administered for the long term, rather than exploited for present gain. The dynastic place of the land, including through the legal structures associated with entailment, ensured that each generation of aristocrats would take the long view, husbanding its land in the interests of posterity, as embodied in their own family. The aristocrat also, as this formulation suggests, aptly balanced loyalty to family and loyalty to the broader nation, at least in theory. A society that was scaling up from local, almost clan-based social organization to the nation-state and even the multinational empire needed a bridging institution that might expand formerly local varieties of social solidarity to operate across larger and larger social and physical distances. The aristocratic conflation of family and nation provided exactly the required bridge. The bridge casts its shadow even into the present, for example, in the use of the word domestic to refer to both household and national affairs. Finally, aristocratic manners reliably navigated the transition from personal to impersonal governance. As society scaled up, administration necessarily grew detached from the personal charisma of individual leaders, slowly acquiring the impersonal authority of bureaucratic rationality. Courtly manners provided an intermediate administrative style to broker the transition, detached from individuals, but without requiring the elaborate institutions of training and professional certification that would eventually confer bureaucratic authority, but did not yet exist. Aristocracy's self-conception as rule by the virtuous seems incredible today, of course. Partly, a rising commitment to equality of opportunity condemned the unfairness of the birthright lottery that inevitably ensues when heredity determines caste. Much more important, the bourgeois revolutions and the rise of a commercial economy reframed the aristocratic virtues as at best absurd and at worst debased. Stubborn conservatism about land impedes growth in an economy based on exchange, innovation, and skilled labor. Obsession with pedigree becomes self-serving in a society that frames membership in terms of a nation or even an ideal. And courtliness and etiquette appear amateurish and even incompetent, where intense training and immense skill underwrite effortful and expert administration. Aristocrats came to be mocked and disparaged for precisely the character traits that once underwrote their authority. By the start of the 17th century, Cervantes would cast chivalry as ridiculous, and toward the century's end, La Rochefoucauld would skewer aristocratic vanity and greed. 
the aristocracy fared much worse in the revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries, of course. And in the 20th, an increasingly confident disdain for aristocracy came to pervade social and economic life, and the aristocratic virtues themselves were reframed as phony and corrupt. Corporate raiders sneeringly targeted firms run by the third-generation Yale man. Ivy League admissions officers became no longer content to admit the happy bottom quarter of old money students from aristocratic prep schools. Brewster's observation that even the privileged had come to prefer advancing on merit rather than breeding gave the Ivy League's seal of approval to an already completed revolution. Meritocrats displaced aristocrats. And meritocracy's charisma explains why the aristocratic conception of virtue seems incredible today. Intense training and bureaucratic rationality have usurped breeding and mannerliness. Democratic accountability has usurped patrician solicitude. And above all, human capital has usurped land. The meritocratic virtues have become so dominant that they appear, especially to the elite, to articulate a natural and even necessary conception of human excellence, as fixed as the conception that once dominated aristocratic life. But virtues almost always depend on context for validation. In some instances, a moment's reflection makes this clear. The athletic skill of a baseball pitcher is like this. Obviously, an artifact of the game that frames it, unsuited to other games, and worthless if the frame changes too dramatically or disappears altogether. The aristocratic virtues depended on context less obviously, but not, in the end, any less completely. And they, similarly, became worthless, or worse, when the social and economic frame changed. As the wheel makes another turn, the meritocratic virtues face a similar fate. Indeed, today's meritocratic elite strikingly resemble the baseball pitcher. Certainly, the training and capacities that make superordinate workers immensely productive in the present world would not have much value in a society of hunter-gatherers, or for that matter, in a society devoted to subsistence agriculture, or to craft production on the early modern model, or even to industrial production on the model that dominated rich nations between the invention of Watt's steam engine and the middle of the 20th century. Moreover, one need not look so far afield to see that the value of the meritocratic virtues depends on context not just generally, but in fact on a very particular context. Both the educations that now create elite skills and the forms of production that make these skills so valuable on the contemporary labor market can exist only at the end of a long cycle of feedback loops in which elite training and the skill fetish reciprocally encourage each other. Elite skills can exist and can command elite incomes only by sitting atop massive antecedent economic inequality. The meritocratic virtues, that is, are artifacts of economic inequality in just the fashion in which the pitching virtues are artifacts of baseball. This insight fundamentally reframes meritocratic inequality by changing the literal meaning of merit itself. Most immediately, it demolishes the leading argument of equality's enemies, that meritocratic inequality 
although unfortunate and perhaps even lamentable, must be tolerated on account of elite workers' entitlements to be paid a wage commensurate to what they produce. It turns out that, even accepting that top incomes reflect merit rather than rent-seeking or fraud, superordinate labor can be so productive only where massive inequality has distorted education to concentrate training and work to fetishize elite skills. But even immense productivity cannot justify an inequality that it in fact derives from and depends on. The proposed justification travels a circle and so justifies nothing. Even if superordinate workers deserve their hard-won skills, they cannot possibly deserve the unequal contrivance that makes these skills so peculiarly economically valuable. And with this recognition, the most politically potent argument in favor of meritocratic inequality, the argument captured in Mankiw's principle of just desserts, simply melts away. Moreover, and more profoundly, the recognition that the immense productivity that allows superordinate workers to command enormous incomes is itself an artifact of economic inequality, casts doubt on the very idea of skill or merit. The doubt may be articulated in two ways, by an abstract argument and through a parable. The commonplace conception of a particular worker's product, her contribution to output, looks to the difference between total output with and without her labor, where everyone else works in exactly the same way, regardless of her participation. This quantity represents the conventional measure of her merit. Markets fix wages according to this model of productivity, which allows superordinate workers to capture enormous incomes. The model explains why the inequality that these incomes produce is commonly considered meritocratic. But a better, both fairer and more accurate accounting of a worker's product asks a different question. This accounting looks to the difference between total output with and without her labor, but now allowing everyone else to reorganize production optimally in her absence. This alternative approach yields a smaller measure of the worker's product because of the offset for the gains achieved by others reorganized in her absence. The difference between the two measures becomes especially great when the worker's presence changes patterns of production generally, including how everyone else works. And the alternative measure becomes especially compelling when the worker prevents others from reorganizing production optimally without her. In such a case, the worker may be massively productive according to the commonplace measure, but not productive at all. Indeed, she may even have a negative product according to the alternative measure. This will happen whenever the direct gains that she produces, with everyone else's work fixed alongside her, are exceeded by the indirect losses that she produces, by preventing others from working more productively, as they could do without her. Today, the meritocratic elite, not individually but as a class, is in precisely this position. Superordinate labor is essential to production given the current state of technology, which causes the labor market to fetishize elite skills. This entails that total output is much greater when elites work than when the remaining less skilled workers attempt to deploy current technologies without the elite. 
de-skilled loan officers, for example, could not possibly manage modern home mortgage finance without super-skilled workers to construct and trade mortgage-backed securities. And the super-skilled workers who administer securitization expect pay commensurate to the gains from securitization, which they regard as specifically their product. Similarly, line workers in downsized firms stripped of their own managerial capacities now depend on top managers to coordinate production. And the elite executives who have monopolized the management function congratulate themselves on their vast and productive powers of command and again expect to be paid commensurately. Superordinate workers of all stripes therefore insist that the inequality that their wages produce is meritocratic. But the technologies that now fetishize increasingly extreme skill are not natural and inevitable. Rather, they are induced by the increasing concentration of training in a narrower and narrower elite. As the feedback loops between elite education and skill-biased innovation reveal. And in this case, superordinate workers as a class prevent everyone else from working in the ways using the alternative technologies that would be optimal without them. Securitization in home mortgage finance undermined and eventually eliminated the mid-skilled loan officer. Elite supermanagers undermined and eventually eliminated middle management. The gains that elite workers produce in a meritocratic world, where inequality-induced innovation has biased production toward their peculiar skills, should therefore be discounted by the reduced productivity that these innovations impose on non-elite workers. The precise balance between gain and loss, of course, remains speculative. But the best evidence suggests that the elite's true product may be near zero. For all its innovations, modern finance seems not to have reduced the total transaction costs of financial intermediation or to have reduced the share of fundamental economic risk borne by the median household, for example. And modern management seems not to have improved the overall performance of American firms, although it may have increased returns specifically to investors. More generally, rising meritocratic inequality has not been accompanied by accelerating economic growth or increasing productivity. A parable presents the same argument less carefully, but perhaps more vividly. Imagine that a society is composed of farmers, who are nurturing and cooperative, and warriors who are cunning and strong. For decades, the society lives in prosperous harmony with its neighbors, as farmers raise crops and warriors keep the peace, and both do well. Then one day, some warriors commence a border skirmish and, through a stream of provocations, steadily escalate hostilities until eventually harmony has been replaced by pervasive and constant warfare. Once the society has adopted a war footing, the farmers become increasingly unproductive and the warriors increasingly essential to preserving safety and welfare. The warriors now claim disproportionate status, wealth, and power on the ground that they deserve private advantages commensurate to their disproportionate contributions to the public good. To which the farmers might answer that the warriors would not be so productive if they had not started the wars. The warriors' true product 
must be offset by the general costs of the war, and especially by its suppression of farming. The snowball mechanism behind meritocratic inequality casts middle-class workers in the role of farmers and superordinate workers in the role of warriors. Only after the rich have concentrated training in their children do the technologies of production adjust to fetishize elite skills. And superordinate workers, who wish to justify their immense incomes on account of their productive merit, will, like the warriors from the parable, falter over the observation that the elite would not be so exceptionally productive if it had not, through the intensive education it gives to its children, started the training war and set its consequences in motion. Like the warriors, the elite's true product must be offset by the costs of meritocratic inequality, and especially by meritocracy's suppression, through inducing innovation that fetishizes skill, of mid-skilled, middle-class production. This raises a final and fatal analogy between contemporary meritocracy and the aristocracy of the Ancien Regime. It is easy to forget that aristocracy was, within the social and moral frames of its time, true to its name, a connected caste to a conception of virtue or excellence, and aristocratic elites disproportionately and indeed almost exclusively possessed virtue, so conceived. The Ancien Regime was discredited in the end, not so much because aristocratic notions of heredity created a birthright lottery that violated equality of opportunity, but rather because the bourgeois revolutions unmasked the aristocratic conception of excellence and virtue as at best ridiculous and, in fact, a sham. It is equally easy to accept the conception of merit at the heart of contemporary meritocracy as capturing genuine social contribution and real achievement. But the earlier accounts of training concentration and skill fetishism, and of the ways in which the feedback loops between them constitute meritocratic inequality as snowball inequality, unmask this conceit. The meritocratic achievement commonly celebrated today, no less than the aristocratic virtue acclaimed in the Ancien Regime, is a sham. The problem with economic inequality is not, as progressives commonly propose, that elites use force or fraud or some other form of bad faith to inflate their incomes in excess of their merit. Nor is the problem, as progressives also say, that elites have not earned the training from parents, schools, and colleges behind the skills and dispositions that superordinate labor requires. Indeed, no version of the thought that economic life strays from true meritocracy captures the basic wrong in rising economic inequality. Meritocratic inequality is wrong on account of meritocracy itself, even and indeed especially when fully realized. And the concept of merit is the taproot of the wrong. What is conventionally called merit is actually an ideological conceit, constructed to launder a fundamentally unjust allocation of advantage. Meritocracy is merely the most recent instance of the iron law of oligarchy. It is aristocracy's commercial and republican analog, renovated for a world in which prestige, wealth, and power derive not from land, but from skill, the human capital of free workers. 
a colossal wreck. These reflections transform the debate over economic inequality. They sidestep the difficult questions about individual desert, and they avoid the moralizing focus on private vices that befuddles meritocratic inequality's conventional progressive critics. Instead of attacking meritocrats, they attack the idea of merit itself. The new beginning sets the argument on a fresh path, which reaches a new and different conclusion. Meritocracy, including the immense skill, effort, and industry of superordinate workers, increasingly clearly serves no one's interests. It renders the working and middle classes, who once occupied the charismatic center of economic life, surplus to economic requirements. It imposes idleness on the mass of citizens, whom it condemns to join a massive and growing lumpen proletariat. At the same time, meritocracy casts superordinate workers as rentiers of their own human capital, which they mix with their alienated labor, and it subjects rich children to the rigors and afflictions of ruthlessly instrumental elite education. Meritocratic inequality divides society into the useless and the used up. Together, these patterns establish an effective but immensely costly mechanism for the dynastic transmission of caste. Effective because they deny ordinary citizens a meaningful opportunity to join the elite, and costly because they draft the elite into a constant, exhausting, and insecure effort to preserve its caste. Along the way, meritocratic inequality undermines social solidarity and corrupts democratic self-government. Increasingly, meritocracy fails even to deliver economic growth. All these costs arise, moreover, not on account of private vices or even collective failures perfectly to realize the meritocratic ideal, but rather directly and specifically on account of meritocracy's structural commitments. The meritocrat insists that all these immense costs, whose reality, and indeed whose origins in meritocracy she does not deny, must be borne on account of merit's moral footing. Superordinate workers deserve incomes that reflect their immense skill and production. Justice requires pay to track output and merit, and it is wrong to favor the less productive, less hardworking middle class over the more productive, harder-working rich. Meritocratic inequality must be accepted and should even be celebrated, notwithstanding all the distress that it imposes. But the sheer size of meritocracy's burdens places such principled justifications of inequality and the conception of merit at the heart of these justifications under enormous pressure. And the conception of merit, once it is revealed as a sham, cannot withstand the pressure. Meritocratic inequality's entire edifice, built Ozymandias-like on sand, comes tumbling down.